2: I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. Charles Lord Cornwallis's campaign through the Southern American colonies came to an ignominious close on October 19, 1781, on an open field outside Yorktown, Virginia. At approximately noon, Cornwallis's beleaguered soldiers emerged from behind their fortifications, laid down their arms, and delivered the Earl's sword to Continental General Benjamin Lincoln— a man whom Cornwallis had helped vanquish a little over a year before at the siege of Charleston. This dramatic reversal of fortune closed the door on a once-aggressive British stratagem designed to end the American rebellion by dismembering its southern limbs one by one. Initial victories at Augusta, Savannah, Charleston, and Camden appeared to augur well for Cornwallis's campaign, but what began with great promise in 1779 and 1780 soon ended in resounding defeat. After fighting Continental General Nathaniel Greene, Patriot Partisans, and the Carolina Backcountry throughout 1781, Cornwallis's army was a spent force. Besieged at Yorktown, with no hope for relief, the Earl was left with little choice but to surrender. Ever since, generals, historians, and popular culture have pilloried Cornwallis for his ostensibly inept handling of the Southern campaign, and have laid responsibility for quote-unquote losing America firmly at his feet. But was the Earl truly to blame? Was Britain's decision to move the seat of war to the southern colonies a sound strategy poorly executed, or simply a bad strategy? These questions form the analytical framework for Stanley D.M. Carpenter's masterful strategic study, Southern Gambit, Cornwallis and the British March to Yorktown, published by University of Oklahoma Press. Stanley Carpenter is a former U.S. Navy captain and recently retired command historian and professor of naval strategy and policy at the U.S. Naval War College. It is my great pleasure to welcome him to the show. Stan, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here, Scott. Before we delve into the book, how did you come to write about the British Army and the American War for Independence, and Cornwallis in particular?
1: Well, this goes back to when I was very young, 10 or 11, I guess. Uh, my, uh, my parents uh, have always been interested in history, and uh, my dad in particular, military history. Uh, he was a, a university professor. And his field was journalism and communications, Um, not history, but he was an amateur military historian, if you will. And so we would go, my two younger brothers and I, we would go to every battlefield and battlefield park that we could. And growing up in North Carolina, of course, you had Civil War and War of American Independence battlefields all over the place in both the Carolinas, Tennessee, Virginia. So we visited a lot as a family. And I remember distinctly, uh, it would have been the summer of 1963, maybe 64. Uh, we went to the Guilford Courthouse battlefield in Greensboro. And, uh, I, I remember that everyone was, uh, all enthralled with Nathaniel Green and, and those that don't know the story, essentially this was the, the big battle that after Cornwallis chased Green all the way through North Carolina and into Virginia. Green came back in and was willing to commit to an actual battle. Uh, Cornwallis won the battle tactically in in that he held the field, but it really um, uh, allowed Green uh, to uh, achieve his strategic intent, which was to attract every time uh, they engaged the uh, British forces. So uh, it was a fascinating battle, and uh, I remember everyone all gaga about Nathaniel Green, only I was intrigued by Lord Cornwallis, and uh, I think that was probably the start of my fascination, not only with the War of American Independence, but specifically Lord Cornwallis. Uh, Also, there's a family uh, relationship there. My uh, ancestors on both sides were all loyalists. On Mm. my mother's side, they were the Scottish Highlanders from around Cross Creek, which is now Fayetteville area, and they were all about 95% loyalists. Uh, then on my dad's side, uh, my great, 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 great grandfather was a loyalist officer uh, wounded in action at the Battle of Ramsor's Mill in June of 1780, mm. uh, which ended his military career. But uh, so there's that family association with the period uh, as well as with British military history. And it just sort of uh, grew from there um, and and a more broadly general interest in uh, in in British history. Uh, so when I was an undergraduate at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, that was my focus, um, was British history in general, but more specifically, uh, British military history. And that's been my basically career path ever since.
2: Britain's objective in the American War, as our listeners probably know, was to put down the rebellion, pacify the colonies, and return them to allegiance. How did the Southern strategy, at least as it was initially conceived, Work towards this end, and why did the British High Command decide to employ it in seventeen seventy eight
1: Well, it didn't work obviously <laughs> uh, the uh, you have to look at the world situation uh, as it evolved by seventeen seventy eight because just after uh, the uh, patriot victory at Saratoga, at that point, the French, who had been surreptitiously supplying arms and powder and uniforms and financial support, uh, actually decided to come out and ally with the Continental Congress or the U- United States um, against their age-old uh, opponent, Great Britain. Now, France France did not really care for revolutionaries. That was not why they were doing it. They were seeing it as an opportunity to get exact some vengeance for their humiliating loss in the uh, Seven Years' War and hopefully gain back some of the colonies they've been forced to give up to Britain uh, with that settlement. Um, So that changed the whole dynamic. Now Britain is fighting not only to put down a rebellion and restore allegiance, but now they have yet another um, World War, global maritime war on their hands against first the French, then the Spanish come in on the French and American side in uh, 1779, then the Dutch come in in 1780, and unlike previous wars, against the French the British didn't have any continental allies and so now they're they're having to defend the Empire and even defend the, the home islands uh, but oh by the way, put down this rebellion in the colonies. so in 1778 they looked at what, where do we go what can we salvage the South uh, was perceived to have a majority of loyalists just waiting for the British Army to show up and rise up. They had done so in, in 1776. That was the Highlanders uh, resulting in disaster. Um, and I think in truth, they, they were right in that assumption that the majority of folks in the South at that time were loyalist or at least neutral and wanted to stay out of the fight. And so to take limited resources to try to win back uh, at least as many of the colonies as possible, starting with Georgia moving up through the Carolinas into Virginia, uh, because those Southern colonies, because of the agricultural commodities like tobacco and uh, indigo and rice, and especially naval stores, timber, uh, they were the most economically viable. So um, the idea was to win back the South, and then with minimal resources, relying on the loyalists to rise up after the army had defeated any patriot forces uh, to restore royal government, and also tamp down any, uh, any patriot activity. That was the, the strategic intent and the, and the strategic concept. And therefore, they launched off in uh, late 1778 on what's called the Loyalist strategy or the Southern strategy.
2: Modern strategic concepts like strategic coherence, strategic leadership, and theory of victory are foundational to the analytical framework you use. I don't want to get into those concepts in a moment, but is it anachronistic to apply modern strategic concepts to 18th century warfare, uh, especially when there's no command and control structure, you know, as we would understand it today?
1: No, it isn't. Uh, it, it, these are concepts that can be applied all the way back to when Caveman A took a bone and and decided to steal Caveman B's cave uh, because strategy is strategy. And and if you look at it this way, um, every human action or interaction has levels like in levels of war. There's a policy, which is the what you want to accomplish. There's the strategy. That's essentially your plan for going about accomplishing that objective or goal. There's the operation, which is you're actually conducting something in support of the strategy. And then there are the actual tactics, um, which is the caveman taking the, the, the bone and clubbing the guy on the head. And one of the things I've always done in my my seminars in the very first meeting is make that point by this example. I'll point to a student who's brought in a a coffee um, and I say, "Okay, let's play a game here. What was your policy objective? And usually they get it. Well, uh, uh, to stay awake in this boring seminar. Uh, Okay, so what's your strategy to caffeinate? So what's your operation to go to the 7-Eleven and buy the coffee? And what's your tactic? Actually drink it. Mm. And and at that point, hopefully most students realize these are concepts, strategic concepts, that have, have applied forever, regardless of whether it's linear warfare or in, irregular warfare or uh, counterinsurgency. It, it Strategic concepts and strategic thinking uh, applies all the way through. So, yeah, you're right that um, you don't have the command and control and communications of 2020. In 1780, 81, but the dynamic of having to communicate intent, strategic intent, uh, control forces from a distance—all these dynamics are still there. It's just in in a different modality, if you will. Mm. And so I I would say that it's like studying Karl uh, von Clausewitz. Yes, he wrote that over two centuries ago. But the reason why we study still study Clausewitz or even Sun Tzu who's over 2,500 years back, the reason is they capture essentials of conflict that have always existed. And so when you take it down to the next level and talk about things like strategic intent, strategic imperative, uh, strategic communications, all these dynamics that go into strategy, they apply regardless of the age, regardless of the venue, regardless of the... uh, time frame all these things still
2: apply yeah i think uh i think it is interesting that uh you know when um when historians typically write about this and and put forth that criticism that they act almost as if uh you know having a general staff or some institutional structure that that you know does what a general staff does somehow inoculates you from ego and personality and i think you know in every war since, you know, the Franco-Prussian War, you see that that's clearly not the case. That the structures maybe they contain it better, but it's not really, uh, it's not really any different.
1: Yeah, and in a book that I did actually was originally based on my doctoral dissertation. It was uh, military leadership in the British Civil Wars, and I looked at uh, six major theater, what we would call today, theater commanders: three Parliamentarian and then three Royalists. And I came up with what I called my uh, uh, characteristics of effective military leadership, things like moral authority, uh, risk taking, all these human dynamics, and then took the six uh, major commanders and racked and stacked them, if you will, uh, to try uh, to add to the explanation of why the parliamentary forces eventually prevail. And of course, as you might imagine, the top three were all parliamentarians, the bottom mm-hmm. three were royalist commanders. Well, these are dynamics that you can I I fully believe can apply, whether it's Lord Cornwallis thrashing about in the Carolina backcountry or or whether it's chasing down the Taliban in Afghanistan. All these characteristics of warfare that have always existed because there's a human context, are are today here. They were in seventeen eighty in the in the colonies, and they'll be here, I think. When we're doing Star Wars yeah. and Star Trek yeah. <laughs> and whatever,
2: The same kind of thing happens. <laughs> oh, that'll be that'll be fantastic, Lord Cornwallis yeah. in space. Um, <laughs> so, so one of the uh, one of the the strategic concepts that looms large throughout the book is uh, strategic coherence. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know what is strategic coherence and how did it manifest or fail to manifest uh, you know in the British high command throughout the campaign.
1: Yeah, the strategic coherence is basically um, whatever side you're on, you have an agreement among the major decision makers that this is the overall strategy we're going to pursue. Um, And then it gets down to the next level of how are we going to to actually uh, pursue that strategy. That's your operational execution. And the problem for the British, when I talk about strategic incoherence, which I'm not sure that's an actual word every time Mm -hmm. the wordsmithing pops up. But I love the word anyway, strategic incoherence. Uh, What you essentially had was the three nodes of the strategic triad, as I call it. Uh, That's Lord Cornwallis actually in the field, uh, Sir Henry Clinton, commander in chief in New York. And then in London, you had Lord George Germain, who was the uh, American secretary of state, who was overall responsible for prosecuting the war essentially they were working uh, off a different strategic concept or different strategic intent. Um, and this was resulted in literally a breakdown in the command and control. Uh, you even had to the point of where Lord Cornwallis, the field commander was completely bypassing his commander in chief of New York and communicating or corresponding directly with Lord Germain. Mm. And so uh that's what i mean by strategic incoherence when you're not operating with the same strategic intent or same strategic concept uh and and bad things flow from that particularly uh the operational execution breaks down and that's what we see in in the southern campaign uh, i would say pretty much from the time that uh, sir henry clinton uh, departed charleston in uh, in june of 1780 after defeating lincoln capturing the city Everything was hunky dory to that point. Once he departed, Cornwallis was in charge, and uh, then you start to see the breakdown in the British strategic coherence.
2: Mm. What was the theory of victory? Maybe you could go into explain that term as well a little bit. And what was the, the theory of victory when they first started operations you know, in Georgia in 1779 at the start of the Southern Campaign?
1: Right. Theory of victory, uh, I don't know if this was original, but Professor Brad Lee, Professor Emeritus from Naval War College, uh, I, was, I don't know if he coined the term, but he certainly made it popular. Theory of victory is just simply those assumptions that you make Uh, that based on the strategy and operations that you're employing, this will happen. It will cause that to happen, which will cause this to happen. And It's almost like a, if you can visualize a a cross, Mm -hmm. crossing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'll do something, the enemy will respond and do something, I will then respond to that. So it's that that set of assumptions um, as to what will happen once you put your strategy and operations into play. And so I would say the theory of victory for the southern campaign was what I mentioned earlier that once the army comes in defeats any uh, continental army forces in the south uh, and any militia or patriot or rebel forces once they're militarily defeated and the army moves on to its next target uh that the local loyalist uh, will then show up in huge numbers and restore royal government uh, royalist militia loyalist militias will put down and tamp down any militia activity uh, on the part of the patriots. And essentially, you're just one colony at a time. Moving up from Georgia, you're restoring uh, allegiance. And remember now also that East Florida and West Florida were already heavily loyalist. So uh, you would start in Georgia and move up probably as far as Maryland. I don't think they planned on going any further north than that. But that was the theory of
2: victory. You mentioned, uh, you know, lo- having loyalist support. And it seems, you know, you stress throughout the book, as you just said, that that they they base the campaign on a, this perception that there's an endless wellspring of loyal support that they'll be able to continuously draw from as the campaign unfolds. Was this the case? And if not, you know, what indications prior to the commencement of the campaign were, you know, Clinton, Cornwallis and Germain reading that gave them this impression?
1: Well, there were a couple of things I mentioned earlier, uh, the loyalists, North Carolina loyalists were badly beaten at uh, Morris Creek Bridge, which, by the way, one of my ancestors was killed leading a broadsword charge across that bridge. (laughs) Um, That was February of 1776. Uh, And literally within a matter of days or weeks, uh, well over a thousand loyalists were raised in that Cross Creek area and they were marching down to join the army. that was supposed to land in Wilmington to commence operations. Well, they were badly beaten, uh, ambushed, and badly beaten at Morse Creek Bridge. But looking at that, well, here's an indicator that there's a lot of loyalist support there, and they're just waiting for the army to arrive. Then the the royal governors of Georgia and South Carolina, both were uh, in exile, of course, were sending letters back to London saying all it takes is the army to arrive and uh, the population will rise up against the rebels, and, and more specifically, a fellow by the name of Simpson, James Simpson, who was the former attorney general uh, for colony in South Carolina, he was specifically tasked by Lord Germain, the American secretary, uh, to assess loyalist um, intent, and he wrote back that once His Majesty's forces arrive, then the population will rise up. So you've got all these indicators of a lot of loyalism. And I think really there probably were a majority of loyalist or least loyalist leaning folks in the South as opposed to the middle in the New England colony. So in that regard, the assumption was probably pretty valid. Here's the problem. Uh, you, you had a couple of events that really tamped down uh, loyalism in the Carolinas. One was... Uh, Battle of Ramsor's Mill, which I mentioned earlier, um, where about 1,300 Western North Carolina Loyalists were gathering to march into South Carolina to join the army. Um, They were attacked at Ramsor's Mill, which is now about 35 miles west of Charlotte, uh, and badly beaten. And uh, this had a real dampening effect, if you will, on the enthusiasm of Western North Carolina Loyalists. Then you had Kings Mountain in October. Uh, those were some North Carolina loyalists, an awful lot of South Carolina loyalists from particularly around the ninety six area uh well, those of us who know the story of King's Mountain that was a disaster so military defeats like that really tamped down the, the loyalist um uh, enthusiasm um, then uh, the activities of uh, folks like francis marion and uh, and Sumter who would win a few, lose a few. But I think, largely uh, on balance, they won more than they lost, and so all these uh, attacks on royalists, uh, and finally you get the point where someone says, "Hey, I really, I really support the king. I would love to be back in good old Britain, but uh, I got to watch out for my family. They hanged my brother yesterday." You know, you get all these human dynamics, and so finally, when Cornwallis, Wallace after um, the Guilford courthouse. Uh, retreated back to Hillsborough, put out this magnificent proclamation. Everybody show up. Um, and it's something like a uh, hundred or so showed up. Most of them waved, said, hi, nice to have you. And then they went home.
3: Mm.
1: And it, at that point, you can actually see in Lord Cornwallis's correspondence where he's basically decided that um, that's an empty vessel, that they're mm-hmm. not going to really get any, any loyalist turnout. But I think ultimately, when you get back to the whole theory of victory, um, the theory, the assumption could have been valid had actual operational events gone. Let's say King's Mountain hadn't happened. Let's say the, the loyalists had won uh, over the Patriots at Ramsour's Mill. These sorts of things uh, changed the dynamic and made the assumptions. Well, as they say, with assumptions, uh, assuming things make an ass of you and
2: me. So yeah. <laughs> that's what happened. At the same time that that those events are going on, though, it also seems that at least a conventional, the conventional aspects, you know, to what you described, you know, as the hybrid warfare seem to be working. You know, they capture Augusta, they capture Savannah, they defeat Benjamin Lincoln at Charlestown. But then this other dynamic is created when Clinton issues the May 22nd and June 3rd, 1780 loyalty proclamations. Did it also suppress the loyalist turnout? Yeah, it had
1: a dampening effect in, in this regard. The intent of the proclamation, I think, was was two parts. The first intent was to basically tell all the paroled Continental Army troops from Charleston, uh, hey, you've lost, no more fighting for the Patriots. And, uh, you know, by the way, you now can't remain neutral. You have to actively support the restoration of royal authority. That was one aspect. And what that did, of course, was if you're faced with, okay, if I don't actually come out in support of the crown and actively engage on behalf of the crown, I'm still in treason, so I might as well do what I want to do and join Francis Marion or flee to North Carolina and rejoin the Continental Army. Uh, so that was one uh, dynamic. The other dynamic was it really agitated the loyalists, who had been suffering under, quite frankly, a lot of oppression uh for the previous 4 years because the patriots had taken control of all the levers of law and government in all the southern colonies so now all of a sudden the, the army has come we crushed the continental army they're on the run and now you're going to allow them to parole you're not going to punish them uh which was uh, uh part of the proclamation and so at that point perhaps a lot of loyalists said why do i bother uh, I'm just going to go home and, and remain neutral, and so I think, although you can't really quantify that, mm. um, there are a few letters that indicate that from various prominent loyalists. But I suspect again a human dynamic. Why am I suffering? Why did I put out? If they're going to allow these people to go free, to not be punished, to allow them to go on parole, so really the proclamations I think had uh, two two impacts: one on the Patriots.
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Despite the partisan violence that erupts after the proclamations, Cornwallis is able to defeat a second Continental Army Mm -hmm. under Horatio Gates at the Battle of Camden. And, you know, this would seem to vindicate... A conventional approach that even despite losing the loyalists you're still essentially the campaign is a success because you are defeating the the continentals in the field but in the in the book you characterize camden as a, as a pyrrhic victory uh why do you see it that way
1: it was as a battlefield victory the most thorough um thrashing of the continentals of the entire war uh a lot of that has to do with the skill uh of Cornwallis himself, of his subordinate commanders like Lord Rowden. Um, The the troops that he had were superb, uh, which is not to belittle the Continental Army troops on Gates' side, but Gates made some huge errors. Um, One of them, since most of his army was actually militia, we all know the problems with militia, uh, especially when they come up against trained veteran soldiers, uh, and and Gates made the tactical error of putting the North Carolina and Virginia militia on his left flank, which of course meant they came up against uh, the boys of the 33rd, the 71st, uh, the 23rd, uh, the regular regiments. And I think that was a foregone conclusion. Where that was a problem and why it was a Pyrrhic victory, it validated, as you just mentioned, it validated in Cornwallis and and every other British officer's mind, this is the way to win. We crush every uh opposition that pops up, and we're accomplishing the mission. We're accomplishing the strategic intent. Because as the locals uh see what's happening, the loyalists will come in and support us, the neutrals will stay neutral, and the rebels will probably try to run to the hills and hide. And and, and you've accomplished your mission. So it was a Pyrrhic victory in the sense that. Tactically, Cornwallis won big, but strategically overall, what it did was it validated a false assumption, and it also meant that now you had the rise of the insurgents because with no more Continental Army forces uh, in South Carolina, uh, folks like Francis Marion and uh, and Pickens and Pinckney and and the various um, groups adopted that insurgency, that guerrilla warfare, if you will. And that ultimately is what cost uh, the British South Carolina in 1781 was the inability to put down those partisan groups, uh, the insurgents. So Camden had that double effect. It had the the effect of validating what was ultimately a false assumption on the part of the British. And it also led to the rise of the of the partisans and the irregular warfare.
2: I guess that actually would kind of belie I was gonna I was gonna ask you a question about you know did it make sense actually to to go after the army in such a way you know once you, once you get to the the race in the Dan which I was gonna talk about a little later but once you get to the race in the Dan does it actually make uh, strategic sense because you know at least in the historiography. You get the sense, you know, especially from Washington's kind of hesitance or, or reticence to engage in open combat with Clinton. You know, he's he and other revolutionary leaders, at least in the military, are, are palpably aware that you know the army is the nation. But this right. would actually suggest that even if you had, you know, wiped out all the continental armies in the south, you're just kind of like hydraulically pushing in one spot, and now you're popping up in all these other other uh, areas, which I guess is a. You know, uh, uh, and one of the issues when an insurgency—you know—we don't usually right. think of the American Revolution as an insurgency, but in you know in reality, that's that's what it was. Right,
1: and that that's the term "hybrid," which is uh, uh, it's a fairly recent term. I think Williamson Murray in one of his books started talking about it, and and that just basically is a combination of of warfare with irregular and conventional, regular elements all working mm-hmm. together, and that, that's exactly what happened in the South. You had the conventional. Struggle between the, the Continental Army and the British forces. And then you had the irregular war going on, which uh, uh, was between the partisans of both sides.
2: Another strategic concept that runs throughout the book is the idea that the enemy always has a seat at your strategic table. So I thought that, you know, we could talk a little bit about Cornwallis's nemesis, General Nathaniel Greene. Who was he, and why was he a more formidable opponent than any other Continental Army general that uh, any, that Cornwallis had met up until that point?
1: Well, let me tell you a story about Nathaniel Green. Uh, since I have lived in Rhode Island the last 22 years, he's sort of a local hero, got, done good. He, he was not a soldier with any experience, but he was extremely well-read uh, in military history and very much interested in it. And uh, he was one of the founding members of a militia unit here called the Kentish Guards. And they were actually very good, very well tra- uh, trained, very well drilled. Uh, but Nathaniel Green uh, walked with a limp. I, th- I think he'd been thrown off a horse or some accident, but a slight limp. So you ha- here you have these very proud uh, militiamen looking like real soldiers. And here's Private Nathaniel Green trailing along behind, dragging his bum foot. So they actually tried to vote him off the island, if you will. <laughs> that was that was 1774. But it's good to have friends in high places because one year later, he is a uh, brigadier general in command of all the Rhode Island forces in the Army of Observation, which was the name of the Continental Army around Boston as they hemmed in uh, General Gage's forces. So to go from private to, to brigadier, uh, it's pretty good. Yeah. But he had good political connections. Well, he was then uh, promoted to major general, uh, an excellent choice because I contend that while someone like uh, Benedict Arnold was probably tactically the best general, at least initially, on the the Patriot side, strategically, Nathaniel Greene I think was the most brilliant and successful, and uh, it was a it was a good choice. Uh, once Gates was defeated at camden and and oh by the way, hopped on his his uh horse uh, ironically named Fear not, and <laughs> didn't stop until he reached charlotte sixty five miles away, uh fleeing from the battlefield well uh Washington appointed uh Green, who had been a superb uh quartermaster general and really kept the army alive at Valley forge Green was a a businessman on uh, his family owned a lot of businesses in Rhode Island. So he had that business background. He was able to, as quartermaster general, even though he hated it, he wanted to be in the field commanding uh, troops, uh, he did a superior job. So Washington appointed him after Camden to go down and take over as commander of the Southern Department. Uh, here's where Green was strategically brilliant, because he realized that the way to defeat Cornwallis was to cause a merry chase, if you will. Uh, to to force Cornwallis to chase him, and every day that Cornwallis was in the field, he lost more men. The more you could pull him into the interior, away from the sources of supply and reinforcement to the Royal Navy along the coast, uh, that was something Cornwallis couldn't replace. And so it, it's a classic protraction and attrition or Fabian strategy. Mm. Um, and then, of course, with a Fabian strategy, you have to have a, a culminating conventional battle defeat. Well, that was Guilford Courthouse. Didn't turn out quite that way, but certainly Yorktown a few months later did. And um, so I think uh, Green was not that good tactically. He lost practically every time he he went into the field. The one exception uh, would probably be Trenton, uh, the attack on Trenton where he commanded one wing of the army. But then when you surprise an attack of few hundred Hessians with your entire army, um, that may not have been that big a deal. When he was the sole commander in the field, he would lose tactically to Lord Rowden or to Cornwallis or to other uh, British commanders, Major Stewart in the various engagements. But he realized that every time he attracted the enemy in combat, even if he didn't hold the field at the end of it, then that was a strategic victory. And Mm. so um, that's why I say Green was probably the most brilliant, successful strategic general on the Patriot side, Um, certainly not one of the best tactically.
2: You observe throughout the book that a significant factor in any 18th century British commander's ability to project land power is his link to the sea, uh, to British maritime superiority. Can you elaborate on that a little and discuss in a little more detail how the race to the Dan was intended to sever this link?
1: Sure. One of the things that, uh, when you study British military and naval history and and strategic culture, is you realize that uh, it it has been an emphasis on naval power really since Henry VIII uh, in the 16th century started building up the the fleet, and because of that, and also because uh, the British army, with certain exceptions like during the World Wars. has always been a volunteer force. Even in the 18th century when uh, the continental armies, uh, not the, the continental army, but the armies of the continent of Europe were basically peasant conscription forces, the British army was what we call today an all-volunteer force. Mm. Uh, you enlisted for typically seven, 12, or 20 years, and, and that was your profession. And because of that, those soldiers tend to be very expensive. And very dear. And so the British Army was always typically very, very small. Very good, very professional, uh, but very small. And it it developed into uh, what we would call an expeditionary culture, um, whereby you use your naval power uh, to inject power ashore uh, and then support them logistically. uh, And then if you, as you had in 1809 with sir john moore at Corona in Spain you had to evacuate but then you come right back with the duke or lord wellington uh, and then you have the uh, the whole iberian peninsula campaign where you had never more than 35,000 british troops on the field and yet they tried it the french uh, to the tune of 250,000 casualties so that is the value of an expeditionary uh, culture uh, whereby you can inject power, land power, practically anywhere that you can sail a fleet into, and then you support them. Here's the problem for Cornwallis. Once they were on the coast at places like Charleston or Wilmington or Savannah, uh, you had the benefit of naval power supporting them. But once you moved inland, uh, chasing Nathaniel Green, for example, you lost that connectivity with uh, the naval support. Um And and I think Green realized that and he understood that without the Royal Navy support, Cornwallis could not replace easily every man lost, uh, whether it was by a combat wound or desertion, although by this time, very little desertion in the British Army. Anybody that was wont to desert had already gone. Mm. So um, uh, but he still could not replace casualties, could not replace people who died of illness. Uh, And Green understood that. So um, he was willing to go on a merry chase. And the British were willing to do that. There's a great quote from Brigadier Charles O'Hara, commander of the Brigade of Guards and was Cornwallis' second in command in North Carolina. And uh, there's a whole series of letters that uh, O'Hara wrote. And in one of them, he says, essentially, we, we vow to chase to the ends of the earth, mm. and so that is, there's the mindset. Well, that made Cornwallis, O'Hara, whatever all the commanders. They're going to chase this guy down and beat him in action, forgetting the fact that he's pulled you inland several hundred miles into the interior, the back country, and there's no way that you can resupply and reinforce. Uh, so that that was the power of of, um, of that strategy. Um, and, and actually in the book, uh, with, with my thesis, if you will, uh, under lack of command and tr- control or loss of command and control, what I'm really talking about there is you have detached yourself from the ability to reinforce and resupply, uh, and, and
2: receive sustainment, if you will, from Clinton in New York. One of the things too that really comes comes to the fore when we get to the critical race of the Dan mm-hmm. is the power of Cornwallis' personality and his yeah. exemplary strategic leadership, if you will, in terms of inspiring the men. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And and this is
1: one of the reasons why I so admire the guy, uh, and was why I was so intrigued by him. Say you your typical aristocratic general of the period, for example, John Burgoyne on the Saratoga campaign, okay. his wagon trail, if you will, of personal effects was miles long, who knows, you know, down marching through the wilderness uh, down the the Hudson River, whereas Cornwallis, when on the the start of the chase of Nathaniel Green and through North Carolina, they got up to Ramsor's Mill, same site as the, the previous battle, and at that point he made the decision they needed to lighten up, they needed to go fast if they're going to chase Green and essentially a huge bonfire. They threw everything in. Uh, All they saved was, uh, I believe, four wagons to haul wounded, a couple of wagons to haul ammunition, and salt.
0: Hmm. And
1: everything else had to be carried on their backs. Tents went in, personal gear went in, the rum ration, and the officers' wine, it all went in the bonfire, including everything of Cornwallis's. Now, that was an extraordinary thing. If you're private snuffy, And here's your, your lieutenant general who is a peer of the realm, uh, an earl, throwing all his personal possessions into this fire. Mm. Think about the psychological impact of that in terms of of loyalty to that commander, uh, of willingness to to sacrifice for that commander. This is a a reason, one of the reasons why I say very very few desertions from that army that marched through North Carolina and into Virginia, because of things like that, and. He was an extraordinary. I don't want to use the word gentle; that's not really the word I'm looking at. But he was a humanitarian. He realized that given the times and given what you you did with people who were treasonous, but it just he agonized over having to execute people, uh, and it, it was very rare uh, that that he would do it. One of the things that uh, really torqued me off, if you will, about the the movie that. Disastrous movie, The Patriot, <laughs> yeah. yeah, was the portrayal of Cornwallis as this pompous, arrogant, uh, blowhard, it, totally 180 degrees out from the from the actual character. Um, and and uh, he just, so many of his traits were those type of traits that are going to cause the, the men uh, under his command to be loyal, to be faithful, to be willing to sacrifice. Uh, There was even one day uh, on the uh, the race, the Dan, where I think they covered something like 40 plus miles. Mm. Now, think about this in the back country of North Carolina, 40 miles in a day, marching on foot. Some incredible feats. Of course, the Continentals were doing the same thing. But that's, I think, exemplary of just the type of leadership and the devotion that that the man inspired. And I think that's throughout his career, his entire career. You see that.
2: Green's Fabian strategy culminates, as you alluded to earlier, with the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. There, Cornwallis defeats Green in a set-piece battle and then moves up into Virginia, where his campaign and the American War come to an end. Uh, in all of this, however, we tend to lose sight of the fact that Sir Henry Clinton is ensconced in New York and could have sallied forth to come to Cornwallis' aid. Did Clinton's overwhelming defensive mindset play a role in dooming Cornwallis?
1: Yes. Yes and no. Um One of the oddest things about the decision to build an operating base at Yorktown, the idea was sound. The idea was to build a a defensive operating post somewhere on the Chesapeake um, for operations in Virginia. The way Cornwallis justified marching into Virginia, first off, think of his his very aggressive personality. There was no way he was going to head back to South Carolina with his tail tucked between his his legs, and admit this didn't work. But he also fervently believed that the way now to defeat Nathaniel Green was to take control of the the narrow neck there, really across the northern part of the Chesapeake, uh, I guess from Delaware on through Mm -hmm. to the mountains. If you could take control of Virginia and control that and cut off all supplies and reinforcements going south, then you rely on Lord Rawdon in South Carolina to defeat uh, Nathaniel Green, which he did and would have. That was Cornwallis's, uh strategic intent at this point. That's why he marched into Virginia, uh, and also to join up with uh, Phillips and, and uh, the troops that had been come, coming down yeah. into Virginia. So that actually, when he was at, at Yorktown, that was the largest force he ever possessed. Um, so that's why he went there. But then an odd thing happened. He basically said, okay, General Clinton, I'll do what you order, which he hadn't done before, and just basically build a defensive post at the one location on the entire East Coast where you could be blocked in, the York <laughs> Peninsula. Now, I guess the assumption was, well, we'll build this operating base, and if we have to, we can evacuate by sea. Well, of course, there you then you have the, the loss of the Battle of the Capes to the, uh, to the French squadron and, and essentially... Chesapeake is under the control of the French Navy, so you are completely cut off there at Yorktown. Um, I think ultimately, looking back, what he probably should have done when he realized that they had lost control of the Chesapeake, the maritime control—that's the point where he should have said, "To hell with Yorktown, head towards Williamsburg again, and basically break out and operate in the field." Because if he had done that, now with seven thousand troops. There was no way that Lafayette and uh, and Anthony Wayne, uh, who were the two commanders there at the time before Washington and Rochambeau arrived, he could have beaten both of them in detail, marched up to the northern part of the Chesapeake, and voila, Green is cut off and isolated in South Carolina. So uh, it's an odd sort of thing why he, as I put in the book, essentially gave up the offensive and became... Uh, a garrison commander, and ultimately, that's uh, that's what uh, what doomed him. The Clinton had a different idea. His idea was to do operations, uh, raids here and there uh, in the Chesapeake. He even flirted with the idea of going back to Philadelphia. You know, hmm. Waste of time, waste of energy, and money and men. Uh, I think Cornwallis had the right idea, but here his operational execution. Uh, probably broke down pretty seriously.
2: So uh, in the final analysis then, uh, you know, is this a good strategy, poorly executed, a bad strategy, or, you know, just an impossible task?
1: That's the favorite question at the Naval War College <laughs> we like to ask. And it's a wonderful one. Um, I would say good strategy, badly executed. Uh, a good strategy in the sense that uh, had it been executed differently, um the assumption that the loyalists would turn out in massive numbers it actually could have happened if they had not done the proclamations that would have helped um if if the uh western north carolina loyalists under colonel moore had not raised too early and then got whacked at ramsborough's bill that was 1300 loyalists that would have joined the army and essentially mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think uh, King's Mountain would have ever happened. Um, so I would say good strategy, badly executed. Mm. Uh, you could make the argument bad strategy. Eh, I don't really buy that. Uh, given the d- dynamics of what Britain was faced, uh, uh, in fact, there was a, an invasion attempt by the French and Spanish in the summer of 1779. So you had to definitely worry about The home islands, you had to worry about the islands in the uh, West Indies, which were economically hugely valuable. So you had to stretch your forces. So the idea of uh, of what can we get back that's most valuable? Well, that, of course, would have been the four or five southern colonies, again, because of the commodity. So Mm. to make that the focus of your strategy, probably a good idea. But again, you got to execute it superbly Mm. uh, and that that they didn't do.
2: Are there any lessons current u s strategic planners you know and theater commanders can learn from Cornwallis's failure? Well, this gets back to the old
1: hearts and minds thing um, and I, and I cite in the book uh, there are a couple of instances where General Clinton himself uh actually used that phrase um, and not exactly win the hearts and minds uh but it's essentially what he's saying mm-hmm. there there are a couple of letters where he does that first in seventeen seventy six he realized very early on, that the key to winning was to maintain or keep popular support um, and I think ultimately uh, if they had been able to do that to to fire up the loyalists to the point that they would be willing to come out in in numbers and and if nothing else logistically support the army, uh, it might have been a different dynamic. I think ultimately it probably was doomed to failure I really I I think the best that they might have accomplished is to win back some of the southern colonies where there probably were not overwhelming, but a majority of loyalists. And I think that's probably about the best they could do. In retrospect, though, uh, I contend, and uh, interestingly enough, you're going to see this in my next book, (laughs) which I'm working on now, uh, co-authoring it with uh, some of my colleagues, and this is going to be at uh, Routledge in their war and history series. And we're going to argue that both sides won. Of course, the United States became the United States. That's a win. But for the British Empire, it freed them from what frankly was an economic albatross, those colonies. There's a reason why every proprietary or privately owned colony within a few years said, that's it, Turned them over to the Royal government and they became a Royal colony because it cost more money to administer and defend them than they ever made out of it. So once they were free of those colonies, the British Empire was able to focus on other places like the West Indies, the East Indies, India itself, and these areas that really built up the economy of the British
2: Empire. So there's an
1: argument that both sides actually won.
2: Would that give us that, uh, you know, in the modern perspective, if if we're thinking about, you know, you describe it beautifully in the book as a, a war within a war within a war. Right. Um, and I think you, you mentioned that earlier in the interview. Should that give us pause then today when we think about or how we assess success and failure in these, uh, yep. you know, in our current endeavors? Right. And getting back
1: to your, your previous question, uh, what are the lessons learned? I hate to use that term because mm-hmm. you can get hammered with you know, lessons yeah. learned from the last war don't apply to this one. Right. But I think in this case it does. And the, the lesson learned is when you are engaged in a conflict at these multiple levels, the war within the war within the war, um, and you are having to fight at the same time a hybrid war or conventional operations, uh, say going into Iraq and fighting the Medina division or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that's a conventional war. And the United States, Great Britain, Europeans, uh, we got that one nailed. Uh, But what you have to understand is almost as important is what happens afterwards. Uh, I think in Iraq, we made a huge mistake by immediately debathification and demobilizing Mm -hmm. the Iraqi army, because now all of a sudden you have these young men trained in violence, if you will, without any kind of career future. Um, And I think look at the problems that has created or did create and probably still is. So if you are, as the the planners, the decision makers, whether you're civilian or military and you're faced with uh, a hybrid war where you're having to win hearts and minds, if you will, but at the same time defeat conventional forces, look back at how badly the British did it in the South Mm -hmm. and take some lessons from that and apply them to your current situation. Um, that I think is the big, big takeaway for for us today. And and unfortunately in the last 20 years we've learned a lot of hard lessons
3: mm.
1: again of you might be the big dog on the street conventionally, but what happens when your victories sets in motion the partisans, the insurgents, the Francis Marians of the world, or the uh, uh, the ISIS of the world. Mm. It's a dynamic. that's gonna happen over and over and over again. So it's part of your strategic planning, you have to take into account that dynamic and the hearts and minds issue. And how are you going to deal with it?
2: Stan, you've been very generous with your time today. We kind of covered one of the last two questions we asked to our, right. any, or all of our guests. What you know, what, What's your next project, which, we, which you just yep. uh, you know went through. Um, but so the, the last question then would be, is there anything uh, that you're currently reading, watching, or listening to that our audience might want to check out?
1: Well, as as you know, uh, I was supposed to talk about at the New York Military Affairs Symposium last week, which in New York got canceled. Yeah. So I'll do it next year, I guess. But I, uh, being the 75th anniversary plus of the, uh, the uh, last couple of years of World War II, uh, what I was going to talk about uh, is Allied uh, operations on the Western Front, starting with uh, Normandy and going through basically to the to the Elbe River uh, so British and American and uh Free French uh, operations uh and as part of the um preparation for that lecture uh I'm rereading or have reread uh the two Cornelius Ryan great books uh the one on the D-Day landing Romandy landing uh the longest day and um uh, a bridge too far which is about the Operation Market Garden uh, and oh, by the way, both those movies, based on those books, The Longest Day and The Bridge Too Far, Hollywood got it pretty right. Mm. So I would say anybody interested in military history, even if it's not interested in World War II, I would say go back and read Cornelius Ryan, uh, The Longest Day and The Bridge Too Far, and then go see the movies as mm. well. That would be my recommendation.
2: Great. Well, Stan, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. And uh, again, thanks for the opportunity to to talk about my book and everything I'm working on. It's, it's a great boon to historians uh, for you folks, folks like you to, to do that for
2: us. Uh, our pleasure. And to all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Scott Lipkowitz. Thanks for listening.